This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. Screen time, mental health and balancing work and family are among the top worries for Kiwi parents. They're revealed in a new nationwide survey of 1,200 parents by the health insurer NIB New Zealand. Nathan Wallace was an advisor on the survey. Of course, he is an expert in uh, brain development and uh, neurodevelopment and is with us for Parenting Today. Kia ora, Nathan. Welcome. Kia ora, how are you? I'm really good, thank you very, very much. So tell me about the worries revealed here. The use of technology, a fairly constant worry, and it shows up particularly in this survey? Yep, NIB's been doing this survey for three years now, and for the third year consecutively, it's screen time that really worries parents. It's interesting that the next ones are worried about mental health and behavioural issues. There's another whole lot that are worried about addictive behaviour, and those are all kind of interrelated. So it's interesting that those top concerns are all interrelated. Was there a shift at all in what occurred or perhaps more intensity in the concern? Was the survey able to capture that or not? Um, I think because of, you know, the screen time particularly, because of us being in lockdown, obviously, there's been a lot more screen time. But, I mean, that was parents' main concern even before we had lockdown. So I think, yeah, lockdown would have intensified it because everyone's let their kids be on the screens a whole lot more. And it is a bit experimental. You know, parents know it's a new thing. They don't know what damage it's causing. You hear all these alarming things, like it's, you know, the same as addictive behaviour in the brain. So I can see why they're concerned. Have there been some positives to come out of what has been a very unusual year, obviously? Was there anything that struck you out of the survey that said actually, you know, possibly an uptick? Yeah, there was a few things. There was um, parents, a notable number of parents, you know, the majority talked about um, really valuing spending time in family and how important that was and how that's something they want to maintain. Um, I thought it was really positive that parents and adults in New Zealand were so quick to acknowledge. I mean, uh, was it 66% of them thought that there was much more pressure put on children today than there was in their day. I mean, you hear people, you know, at the local pub going, oh, this generation have got it so much easier, they've got their own bedroom and an Xbox and a PlayStation. But what the NIB parenting survey shows is that um, they are acknowledging it's a whole lot harder. There's a lot more pressures for um, teenagers and children today than there was in previous generations. On the question of that work-life balance, um, and interesting to hear families reporting, actually there were some positives out of this. We got more time together. But back in normal life, is it still a real issue for many families to feel like they've got that sorted? Well, I mean, at least those families are all having their aim. Certainly the NIB parenting survey showed that you that parents want to. They want to maintain that. So they're, you know, putting in place um, rituals and practices to try and maintain that. Whether they do or not, I suppose we'll see that next year's survey. What did it say about the actual occurrence of um, a mental or a, a mental health or a behavioural issue over the period? Did, was it actually able to be quantified that there'd been an increase? Um, yeah, it, it's from the previous year. We can see not so much the actual incidents, like, you know, with the mental health that are filed, but parents' concerns about it. So certainly the percentage of parents has increased that are worried about mental health. It's a representative it, sample, as we should say. So interesting uh, interesting stuff. Yeah. Let's look into some of this a bit in a bit more detail. 
Yeah. The challenge of technology, I see two-thirds of parents saying they, they believe their child couldn't live without their devices. I think we can say that about adults as well increasingly these days. But perhaps mm-hmm. what they're indicating there is that any kind of separation from the devices is, is proving an issue. Where are you at with it now? Where are you at with how a parent can best approach responsible management and responsibly helping their child and young person learn to manage screen time? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, Catherine, I, I like to go back to the research and such people that have actually done that and validated it. And what the research shows us is that there is an increased risk of anxiety and depression the more screen time you have. So that's a real concern appearance, and it's valid that the more screen time, the more risk of anxiety and depression. But if you, if the child comes from a household where the parents have two hours device-free time a day, then that completely takes them outside of that risk group. So what that tells me is we don't have to take away their devices. We just have to give their brains two hours a day of the conditions under which it's evolved, which is continuous communication, interaction. Now they tend to communicate for 20 seconds and then flat face, fall down and look at a screen. When you look at a screen, your face goes flat. That, yeah, they don't need you know 12 hours a day being off a screen. According to that research, they just need two hours a day. So if we go like, hopefully when they're interactive, you know, they always ask if it could be 3 a.m. to 5 a.m., but no, it has to be when they're up and, and interacting. You know, I, with my kids, I do it around tea time because I know that's the time they're going to be interacting and they just knew and I'd have to model it myself, of course, and put my own device away. But if between five and seven, there was no devices, um, yeah, that gives the two hours of interacting and there might be a bit more fighting and flicking each other with tea towels and stuff, But and that might seem annoying, but those interactions release all the peptides and stuff in the brain, which keeps us in good mental health. So it's all about just interaction. That's actually connection, isn't it? The flicking the tea towels and all the annoying stuff and... (laughs) and, you know, kids sort of wrestling each other and rolling around, that is actually the human-to-human contact that can get lost. Absolutely. And that seems to, like I say, release all of the neurochemicals and peptides in the brain which keep us happy. So, you know, we we need that. And we can't just have it in tiny little bursts. We seem to need that consistent two-hour blocks. You you don't even get the same results if you do an hour here and then an hour there. It is about the consistency of doing one two-hour block. It gives your brain all it needs. And negotiating that is, is done how? Um, it's much easier if you're doing it if you're about to give your child a cell phone for the first time because you just lay that down as the conditions. That's what happens. That's what's normal in a household. Um, if your kids already feels like they're surgically attached to their, um, you know, to their cell phone and they're just going to die without it, then that's going to take some negotiation. And I'm, you don't want to be punitive. They're already going through a lot, so I might um, make that incremental. I might go, well, it needs to be two hours, but I realise that's a lot, so let's try, you know, for half an hour on the first day, three quarters an hour the second day, and go up in increments of. 15 minutes or 30 minutes, just whatever's going to make it easier for the child. If you try and get them on side with it and get them to understand that it is for their benefit, it is for their well-being, there's lots of stuff that they can do without the computer that they have to do. So they end up just sort of filing all of those things into that two-hour time period. Uh, One that is specifically age-related question, could you please ask about their opinion on toddler screen time and how much is too much when they're very young? What are we talking about, Nathan? Um, if you talk about a toddler, someone who's like, you know, around 15 months, then um, any amount of screen time is too much, really. I don't see that toddlers really need any screen time. We know that for under 12-month-olds, it's, it's, you know, it's not good because it interferes with the, the development of their vision. Um, but even at 15 months, I'd be very dubious. You know, it's, um, it's giving the child's brain an instant reward for absolutely no effort. So you're not encouraging any problem-solving or any creativity or any individual thought because the 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 screen, the program behind that is telling the child what to think. So I would just be very, very cautious about any screen time at all. No point beating yourself up um, about it. 
if you're using it as a type of babysitter, but just be aware there's no educational benefit. It's something your child is tolerating. So try and have it for very limited periods of time with a toddler. On that question of parents being worried about increasing addictive behaviours, it's mm-hmm. interesting that putting that phone down for two minutes is part of the story because we all know we get that ridiculous little dopamine hit just from flicking yep. through, frankly. Um, and yep. boy, did those social media companies know what they were doing when they designed them. But but the dopamine <laughs> hit comes just from using this bit of kit. Can that yep. translate into other behaviours? If you do have to put it aside, do we see out, do we see other addictive behaviours replacing it? And if so, what's going on with that, Nathan? Well, it's just your brain wants to get the as big a reward for as least effort as possible. So it's not going to object to you putting the PlayStation or the um, or the um, you know iPad in front of you because it gives that instant reward. And so I suppose it's up to us as parents to know that that's not what's best for them. So we have to help them to moderate that out. Because you're right, when they get off the iPad, they're going to want to go to the next thing that's going to give them the most endorphins for the least effort. So um, and communicating and talking and, and with family and the stuff we talked about before. Um, takes a bit more effort and, you know, to get that dopamine hit. So I think we've just got to sort of set them up for success. You know, you've got to set up other things that they can do. Make yourself available during that time so that you are, you know, if you're going to bake biscuits in the kitchen, do it at that time. If you're going to be cooking tea, do it at that time and start trying to set it up to be a positive interaction as much as possible. So it used to be outdoor stuff like go and mow the lawns and you'll get X of a reward but you also get that internal reward and again that's what people are hunting for as you say but if you do it by going outside and doing a task or doing some kind of physical task you may have to negotiate an actual reward as part of the process but that intrinsic reward of finishing the task is an extra benefit right? It is, it does. It it releases. They say that's why we have more depression now than they did during the Great Depression. Because a lot of your, um, the endorphins in your brain that are released are connected to finger movements. You know, so when you used to do, you know, thousands of finger movements to do the dishes, um, that released a certain amount of endorphins. Now you just stick them in the dishwasher and push a button. We're not, we're not doing things as much. We're not as active. And evolution doesn't keep up as quickly as, as technology and culture. So, so much of our um, happiness and our endorphin release is still to do with our hand movements. So, and yeah, getting doing stuff physically gives you that physical reward as well as that interesting. Task reward. completion is such an award, which such a reward, which is why you want to have tasks that are paced to the amount of available time and, and the ability to get a result. But it says a lot, doesn't it, about still encouraging your kid out to tinker in a shed or with the car or something, and they might whinge and moan, and it might be an effort, but there's a yeah. double whammy reward out of persevering with that. Yeah, and they do. It doesn't take too long to establish that ritual. You know, once you've got that five to seven or whatever time works for your family, they will probably complain about it. But it's only two weeks into it, and they actually start to use the time quite productively and start to do things like tinker in the shed. Now, the third one, the mental health concerns. Uh, everyone is at one level or another, another having to manage that. What, what's your yeah. What's your comment on that? As adults. You've often worked out some strategies along the bumps in the road. You can often yeah. recognise when there's a thought pattern happening um, or there's something happening that's going to cause trouble and you'll have yeah. a strategy for it. Kids have to learn this for the first time and in such an extreme example as they've been going through the last year or two, what are some mm. ways you can help them learn their own signs and, and what to do about it? 
yeah, to help them to manage their own mental health. I mean, some of it, that I said at the start, was interesting, they were all interconnected because the very stuff that we've just talked about is going to help them manage their mental health. You know, um, by having two hours a day free of devices, um, it forces their brain or it gives their brain the opportunity to basically play. And it's that play that encourages creativity, which is the basis of resilience and coming up with those strategies. They've got to have time to continuously think about um, those strategies and practice them. And two hours a day device-free time gives them a window of opportunity to do that. Um, I think, you know, this generation have had it a whole lot harder. I mean, so much of that was laid down in our early childhood just being at home with an at-home parent. Um, these kids have had a very different sort of upbringing. So, but I think the principle behind it is the same. We have to, like, it's like an apprenticeship. You know, we know how to manage our mental health, like you said, you know, to a certain extent, we all struggle a bit. Um, we've got to teach those strategies to the kids. So it's about um, modelling that. I do think of it like they're the apprentice and, and we're the A-grade mechanic and we've got to teach them about how to manage their brain. One example, of- well, one example is ruminative, rumin- ruminative thinking, right? Ruminating. Yep. And, yeah, rumin- and, and using thought distraction, when you're getting yourself into a vicious cycle, right? Using thought distraction um, or self-talk you make yeah. a very valid point. When someone is um, beyond the self-management stage, a whole different series of things have to happen. But this is just day-to-day dealing with moods, yeah. right, and feelings. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that kind of skill about how to distract yourself from falling into a pattern like that, mm-hmm. you know, how do you get that through to a, a young person? Do you just talk well, about it? It all comes down to communication, doesn't it? Because you, you can't just simply tell them. You know, teaching is not simply telling people or else teaching would be a whole lot simpler. It's about getting that person to listen and getting them engaged. So it all comes back to communication. You know, I've advocated before that thing I call make day, where you set aside a 10-minute window of time that's predictable each week at the same time where the kids are allowed to say absolutely anything they want. You don't correct them. um, You don't um, interrupt them. You don't ask questions to lead the conversation. You shut up and let them be in charge for 10 minutes and say whatever they like. There's no consequence for what they say. It's like a little window of opportunity where they're outside of the rules. Because that's the fastest thing I've ever learned, to get a child to open up and communicate when we stop correcting them, stop interrupting them, and stop telling them what to think and give them a 10-minute predictable time with no consequence where they can say what they like. If they get to express themselves like that, they really start to open up in their communication. And through opening up in their communication, that's how we teach those strategies about managing your mental health, because they start to talk about it. You know, we need them to talk about it, really. It's also just the way the rug's been pulled under so many of their plans. And again, when you're older, you see seasons come and go, you see events come and go, um, yeah. and, you know, a year just feels... Um, a year for a kid is an X percentage of their life, right? And when one or two years have had their plans whipped away from them, that feels yep. like, you know, 10% or 20% of my life being dealt to. So, again, yeah. is, is yeah. listening to how that feels as important as trying to say, you know, the ship will come in again, things will, the, yeah. you know, opportunities yeah. will come back again? Is the listening to how they feel the key thing? I think that they're both key things. You know, we talk about number number one, calm the brainstem. You've got to calm them down first. If they're, you know, having an anxiety attack, there's no point doing anything. Number one's calm them down. Number two, you validate those emotions that they're feeling. You validate that this is a difficult time. I mean, when we say, when you're a teenager, that's such a ritualistic time of life. If you're, I do really feel that the people who are 15, 16, 17, this is a huge percentage of their life. It must feel to them like 80% of their life has been taken from them. Um, because, yeah, they, those normal rituals are in place. So we have to validate that. 
But there's no point just validating that and leaving them sitting in the misery of it. So step number three is to then provide a positive cognitive strategy for how to deal with that. So number one, calm them down. Number two, validate how they're feeling. But number three, help teach them those strategies for how you deal with that. Help them to see that um, things will come and go. You know, it's, it's like waves in the ocean. They, you're at the bottom now, but the and wave will come where things are all good and you're at the top. It's about making the most of the opportunities as they come. Some questions to get through this first one's just an observation. Cura have discovered that even half an hour on devices means they are grumpy when they get off the device. Takes another half hour before they come right. That's an interesting yeah, that's observation. Been, that's been my observation too, that it only takes half an hour to zone into that space. And once they're in that space, um, getting them off the computer, yeah, especially boys, I noticed they're quite grumpy um, because they want that instant endorphin hit. They, well, that was nice. They were enjoying it. And you've taken it off them. Hmm. So... Again. This is a bit of a large topic, and we might return to it, but we'll get an initial um, response from you. What's your opinion on innovative learning environments in primary schools, large classrooms with two to three teachers, 50 to 70 kids, versus small single, uh, smaller single classrooms, one teacher with 25 kids? Do you have a preference? I'm trying to decide what school to send my nearly five-year-old to next year. Yeah, um, I probably do have a preference overall, which is because I'm so much about single relationships and having a one high-quality relationship that I probably would err on the side of having the one teacher with the 25 kids. But there are advantages in that modern learning environment um, where you've got three teachers and, like, you know, 70 kids, because if one teacher leaves, the kids still, prime, you know, still got two other consistent relationships going. I think the danger with modern learning environments is if you get you know, 80 kids and three teachers, and all three teachers are equally attached to 80 kids, kids fall through the cracks then. But if you divide those, eight, you know, let's make it 90 so it's easier to divide into three. If you divide those 90 kids and each teacher has 30 kids each that they are responsible for, um, that the buck stops with them. So the other 60 kids are like their nieces and nephews, but those 30 kids are their, you know, their, like their children. That way you don't have any kids falling through the cracks. That way you've got sort of get the best of both. So it's really, it's a hard question to answer because it really depends on how it's implemented, but I would veer on the side of a single teacher probably. One more, if you could do it as succinctly as is realistic. Uh, this person says, I'm getting a few people complaining that their unvaxxed 12 to 15-year-olds are being excluded from sports, etc., and claiming they're too young to decide themselves to get a COVID vax. Personally, I feel they're not giving their kids enough credit for ability to assess info or to have a chance to show some social conscience. But when do you think young people are able to make their own vaccination decisions? Um, I would say at 18, because that's what the law says. It's, you know, um, the law says that you become an adult when you're 18, and I think before that your parents are supposed to guide you. I don't think your parents are supposed to dictate to you, so I would expect that my 17-year-old, I would be going 90% with what they thought. But there's a reason why you know, you're still a child until you're 18, because you, I think parents should be involved in that decision until they're 18. But it's just what, well, what degree of involvement do they have? You know, I think it's less and less as they get older. But I think it's all about partnership. Nathan, thanks so much as always. Nathan Wallace.